Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Mark 2. I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We continue in our journey through Mark's Gospel. We've come to chapter 2. We'll read uh, the first 22 verses. Mark 2 verse 1. Listen. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, everyone has an opinion. We live in a world that is preoccupied, it seems, with rating and ranking. So we rate the Uber driver 
or the restaurant or that product you bought on Amazon. And part of the goal is you simply want to express your opinions. You want the whole world to know what you thought of your driver or your meal or that product. Maybe a small part of you wants to encourage others to use or not use that driver or to eat at or not eat at that restaurant or to buy or not buy that product. Well, if Jesus and his ministry as they are described in Mark chapter 1 were to be subjected to the kinds of reviews we might see on Amazon or Yelp, you would see only and all five stars. Jesus taught in the synagogues, he healed the sick, he cast out evil spirits, and he was attracting the kinds of crowds we might expect to see at a Taylor Swift concert. His fame and his reputation spread to the point where chapter 1 ends with Jesus no longer being free to move about in public because he's being swarmed. So he retreats to the wilderness and people still find him. There is not one hint in chapter 1 of any kind of human resistance or opposition to Jesus. It is all good news all the time. Everyone is thrilled. But fame is fleeting and things change beginning in chapter 2. And here we're going to discover a kind of resistance and opposition to Jesus that is going to run through the entire rest of the gospel. In fact, it will follow Jesus all the way to the cross. In fact, it's the same opposition or the same kind of opposition at the end he faces here that will actually put him on the cross. And so Mark collects and records five distinct episodes in the early life of Jesus uh, in his early ministry, beginning here in chapter 2, verse 1, running through chapter 3, verse 6. Five distinct episodes. This morning we're taking up only the first three. We'll leave the latter two that have their own distinct internal coherence. We'll leave those for next time. But notice simply up front how all five of these events, as they are strung in succession by Mark, share a basic three-part pattern. Jesus does something that attracts the attention of his audience. And then there's a negative reaction to what he does. And then Jesus engages that reaction. And he takes a moment to reveal himself, uh, reveal himself to them in new and unfolding ways. So this morning we're looking at these first three episodes of the five and we're looking at what Jesus does that attracts attention and the criticism he receives and his response as he reveals more about himself. And all this in some way also begins to answer the question, well, who is this Jesus? And the other question I raised last week, why do we get to a point at the end of the gospel that people who are praising him in chapter 1 will kill him? John, or Mark chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's back home. It's a pretty good chance he's at the home of 
Andrew and Simon. When he was last in Capernaum, he, you'd have to go back to chapter 1, 21, he had been teaching in the synagogue and then he headed over to Simon and Andrew's for lunch. He healed Simon's mother-in-law, you recall. For what we don't know about the living arrangements, we know this, he is again in this house surrounded by crowds. They are pressing in on him, they are filling every space in the house, they are blocking the doors. And this is where we meet this unnamed, paralyzed man and his friends, and we might wish we could have heard their conversation of that morning, or their conversation when they arrived at the house and discovered that their passage to Jesus is blocked by people who do not want to seem to move and let them through. But his friends are persistent and tenacious, and as an act of faith on the part of these men, which I think we should imagine is also representing the faith of the man on the mat, they believe Jesus can and will heal him if they can just get him to Jesus. So they go around back or upside or whatever and they make their way to the rooftop and they start to peel off the roof. I would have loved to see the faces of everyone in the house and especially the homeowners, if it's Peter and Andrew, and, and looking up and realizing they're about to get a do-it-yourself sunroof that they weren't asking for. The skylight to this house reveals the man on the mat being lowered down to Jesus. And the first bit of dialogue, if you notice, in the whole story, the first little bit of dialogue comes from Jesus. He recognizes in this act faith. And he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, this is not what the man came for. Turns out it's better than he could have imagined. But Mark is interested in getting us to, moving the story along, getting us to the reaction. The first critical response of Jesus in the whole gospel at this point, notice it's a, a silent one. Verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And that's where it begins, but it seems they hadn't yet vocalized and we should remember back in chapter 1, in the same town, before Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, he was preaching at that synagogue. And the congregation marveled at him. And Mark says they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And in this delightful little turn of events, the same scribes are now sitting here questioning in their hearts, who does this guy think he is? By what authority does he think he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Now, these are uh, seminary-trained theologians. Their questions are on target. 
They are trained in the scriptures to make profound and theologically correct observations, which they essentially do. That is, for Jesus, this man standing here in the press of the crowd with a man in front of him on a bed who's paralyzed or in some ways uh, debilitated, and to say to him, son, your sins are forgiven, is a bold claim. Or it's just a complete fraud. But if he's claiming that this man's sins are forgiven, he's making himself equivalent to being God. Where they are wrong, of course, is in presuming that he is not, and that therefore he is guilty of blasphemy. But here's the rub. After all, anyone can really say your sins are forgiven. It's an untestable, unverifiable, unprovable claim. Jesus says of this man, your sins are forgiven. How do you prove that? There's no way to demonstrate the truth of that statement. And so there really are only two possible options, and this is the moment of truth in the the story. Is Jesus God or is Jesus a fraud? And so Jesus then speaks, the third part of this first story, Jesus discerns and exposes their thoughts. He calls them out. And he gets right down to the real issue Mark and the Spirit of God through Mark wants to highlight. That is, is, this has everything to do with the authority and the identity and the ministry and the mission of Jesus. So he puts the question to them in verse 9. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? He doesn't wait for an answer because the answer is obvious. It's easy enough to say your sins are forgiven precisely because it's impossible to either confirm or to refute. So Jesus explains what he is about to do. He addresses the scribes first and and then he speaks to the man on the mat who, by the way, must have been watching this little exchange, a bit of a ping-pong match. He must have been watching that with some degree of interest. It concerns him, after all. And so to the scribes, Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and he turns to the man on the mat, And he commands him to do something the man is unable to do apart from divine intervention. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He rose. He immediately picked up his bed. He did what he had been told. He did what he was unable to do on the way in. He couldn't go through the crowds. Now he walks and they part for him. And everyone is amazed. This demonstration of God's power in Jesus results in a man being healed physically. Don't miss that. He is restored to health as a picture of what Jesus had come to do in his own death and resurrection. But he's also restored with respect to his spirit. He is forgiven. He's healed of his sin. 
And Jesus, in this moment where this man walks out as a beneficiary of God's grace, of his miraculous power, in his forgiven, uh, be, being forgiven of his sins and being healed in his body, being put back together, Jesus confirms his divine authority to forgive sins on earth. Because he is the spirit-empowered son of God and son of man who had been sent to this world to do just that. And he does for this man what he is going to do at the cross. Pay for, atone, cover sin. And in his resurrection, restore and what he's going to do when he comes back restores completely. Well, the second episode has Jesus outdoors again. Now he's by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax booth. He says, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. Again, Mark, quick, to the point. And it's almost as if Mark notes this moment in passing, as if this is not his primary concern in his haste to get to the conversion party at Levi's house. The party Levi throws for his friends and for Jesus and for Jesus' friends and disciples. But again, don't miss the fact that Levi is a tax collector. Not exactly the most upstanding citizen in the eyes of the average Jew, never mind the religious leaders. You could put it this way, he's not exactly the kind of guy who you would expect to be in line to receive God's grace. He's a traitor, he's a social outcast, he's a, he's a Jew who's working for the Romans. In other words, he's working for the foreign occupying power, the people who are in God's land, ruling over God's people without their consent. And Levi is collecting taxes from the Jewish people they would consider illegitimate, never mind simply whether or not you like paying ta any taxes at all. But these, this is amplified by the fact that these, these taxes are going to, they're imposed by and they're going to support the very structures and the power and the people who are ruling over them from Rome. So not our friends, and we're paying their way. And along the way, Levi is making his money by collecting a surcharge. He's in with the Romans. And he's making a living off of the backs of his own people. He's pocketing a percentage. And so he is, to the average Jew, an unscrupulous traitor. Well, this newest disciple of Jesus throws a party. He honors his new master. He invites all of his old friends and now some of his new friends who are with Jesus. But his old friends are really best described as riffraff. A large company of tax collectors and sinners, which is kind of redundant. This is not a respectable crowd. They might have been well-dressed and well-put-together, and they might have moved in uh, circles with powerful people. But to the average 
Jew or the average religious leader, these are the undesirables. Well, here's the, re the response or the reaction. And in case we missed it, notice Mark mentions tax collectors and sinners three times. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees saw he was eating with tax collectors, or sinners and tax collectors inverted. And they challenged the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, at best, for the Pharisees and the scribes, this eating and drinking together is a kind of identification with, or expression of fellowship and even unity with the unworthy, undesirable people who are clearly not on God's guest list of approved people. But there's more to it. This is also a deeply religious problem because Jesus is touching the unclean, the unwashed, and he's eating and drinking food and wine purchased with those ill-gotten gains. They'd probably not been tithed on. And this was a moment I think should get our attention because I wonder if we can resonate with the Pharisees here. We know we're not supposed to, but ask yourself if you line up a little bit, or at least you can appreciate what they're saying. We could imagine, for example, Levi inviting Jesus over to the house, and Jesus saying something like this. All right, well, who's all going to be there? And then Jesus might say, look, Levi, uh, because it's you, I'll swing by your little party for a minute, but I'm not staying for dinner. And I won't be reclining at any tables with you and your old boys. Because I do not endorse or approve of what your friends in the tax collecting union do. And I can't be seen by them or by others as if I condone or approve your behavior, because that's how it's going to be interpreted. It'll confuse your friends who are sinners, and they'll think it's okay to live that lifestyle. It will mislead my disciples who are kind of new uh, to the program. It'll confuse them, and it'll certainly offend the religious leaders. Everyone will think I'm okay with what those people do. People will wonder what kind of a Christian I am, eating and drinking with those people. And if that's not enough, it would be sinning against my own conscience to associate with that rabble. And again, all this might, is right to the point because if the Pharisees are going to ask the question, who is the most likely candidate to be welcomed into God's kingdom, to receive God's grace, who would receive the mercy of God through the Messiah, they're probably going to say, well, the people who are all washed and put together, who are obeying the law, who have a kind of, at least, sure look like they're doing the right things and repudiating the wrong things. Levi and his ilk are not the first names they're going to mention. Why does he eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Again, I think as we can easily identify with the Pharisees here, we are invited to hear Jesus' response. He says, I have come to announce and inaugurate the kingdom of God, which includes this grand plan of God, long predicted, now come to expression, to defeat the powers of sin and Satan, to call people to repentance and faith to undo the effects of sin in this world, and to gather to myself a worshiping community. And the Pharisees and the scribes make a simple but critical error. They imagine that they and those like them who rigorously keep the law are most aligned with God's plan, most likely candidates for God's grace. And it's a devastating response that we need to hear. Jesus says, those who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, and you can use your air quotes there, but sinners. It is not that Jesus has no interest in the scribes or the Pharisees. But their problem is they think they're doing just fine Thank you very much. They don't even know that they have a need for a Savior, and if you were to ask them if they did, they would deny it. They would point to their performance, to their law-keeping, to their obedience, to their scrupulosity. And on the other hand, and this is where Jesus focuses his energy, he has come to save those who know they are sinners, who are not right with God and who know it, and who have come to the end of their resources and say, I need someone because I have this unsettled feeling of being spiritually sick and unwell, and I know that I need a physician for my soul because I have a sickness that leads to death. Jesus says, I'm here for you. That's why I came. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sins in that first story and to heal. And he seeks out and meets sinners now and calls them to himself to be saved from sin and is not embarrassed to mix and mingle with sinners. This is why he came. And then there's a third episode, and it's a question about fasting. It's, of course, interesting. Mark places this right after a story of feasting and eating and drinking and celebrating. We're not told how people knew the disciples of Jesus were not fasting, except that they were at this party, but it doesn't necessarily follow that this is immediately after. We are not told what patterns of fasting the disciples of John or the disciples of the Pharisees were practicing. All we have from a position of something Jesus' disciples are not doing is a question that, again, comes in the form of a challenge. The premise, of course, is that fasting is pleasing to God. It's an act of piety. It's a spiritual and religious practice, and Jesus' disciples aren't doing it. In fact, they're apparently doing the opposite. Fasting is a divinely appointed means, uh, a command even by which the People of God are able to, uh, who deprive themselves of food or pleasure of life, and they show humility and penitence and, and sorrow for sin. 
So you can understand why the disciples of John were fasting. This act of piety, this spiritual discipline expresses in some way a dissatisfaction with the present state of affairs, either in my own heart or in the world. And it expresses a longing for a future divine visitation, some kind of divine blessing. In other words, when fasting, when it's done right, focuses less on the deprivation and more on the long-awaited Messiah. And so Jesus speaks. He, he responds to this question, this criticism veiled in the form of a question, and he, as, as if to say, why would my disciples fast? Why would they be praying for the Messiah? Why would be, they be longing for something better when the Messiah is standing right in front of them? I am the bridegroom. The friends, in anticipation of a wedding, hanging out with the bridegroom, aren't fasting, they're feasting, they're partying. And because my arrival has been so long expected and much anticipated as the expressed wish of all those Old Testament fasts and prayers, now that I've come, why wouldn't you be vigorously celebrating? Why would you be back in the mode of longing and waiting for what is right there in me? Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. He's been sent by the Lord. And the fact the Lord has come to marry and redeem and restore his hopeful, longing bride. If you want to hear more about this, come tonight and listen to Pastor Schultz as he talks about the image in the Gospel of Ezekiel. Jesus, who has the authority on earth to forgive sins and who cuts through this question of who is eligible for the kingdom, is also the culmination of God's plan of salvation. He brings a new way of seeing and experiencing the forgiveness of sins, the joy of restoration. He brings joy to people who have been told for a long time they are without hope because they are too great a sinner. And his way of celebrating, and, his, and their way of celebrating his arrival is incompatible with those old ways of fasting and mourning and praying with expectation for what has arrived in Jesus. Just as incompatible as taking new cloth, sewing it onto an old garment. Because when that cloth shrinks, both the cloth and the garment are ruined. Or as incompatible as putting new wine, not yet fully fermented into a, an old wine vessel or container so that when it does ferment, it has no room to go and bursts at the seams. Again, his point here is that both are going to be ruined. The old way of mourning and the new way of celebrating, there's a kind of incompatibility about that in the presence of Jesus. Now the bridegroom is gone. He's with us by his spirit. We are with him in heaven. There's still an element for us of expectation, anticipation, praying. But for his audience here, Jesus says, I am right in front of you, celebrate. 
that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I am the bridegroom, the one who is to come, celebrate with me. If you are part of our culture where you feel like you need to rank and rate everything you drive in or eat or enjoy or buy, my simple question for you today is this. How would you rank and rate Jesus? What's your opinion of him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these three stories woven together under your Spirit's guidance and direction by our friend Mark. Thank you that we see Jesus in new and fresh ways and we recognize his divine authority and his ability and his desire, his will and his power. And so we celebrate. We celebrate with a hint of longing and anticipation and expectation of his return, but we celebrate. We thank you that he has come. We even thank you that the opposition he faces here will bring him to the cross and that he, by your spirit, breaks our own opposition. And by your spirit, you have opened our eyes to see our need, that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that he is just the perfect Savior for us. Receive our thanks. Hear our prayer. We ask it in Christ's name and all God's people say together, amen.